Jordan Belfort made a couple hundred million dollars in the bull market of the 90s. Belfort reveals every mind-blowing detail in a new book called The Wolf of Wall Street. I see that people talk tough a lot and then you watch them wilt and they run. I see this all the time in business. They run at the first sign of trouble. You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving! Joining me today is Justin Kennis. Justin Kennis. The one and only Justin Kennis. We're joined by Justin Kennis, CEO of GameSquare. But I think from that day forward, for me, it was like I had this healthy chip on my shoulder, which was just I had this driver ambition to always prove that, you know, not only can I do what you can do, but I'm going to be better than, than you are. But it's easy to say, not so easy to do. And I think that it goes beyond that. What toughness means to me is. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinford. And today we've got a couple of high-flying business moguls on our show. Uh, first up, we have Jordan Belfort, best known by his nickname, the Wolf of Wall Street, but born in the Bronx, raised in Queens. So you know he is tough. He's the founder of Stratton Oakmont and managed over a billion dollars at one point. Lived a wild life, super high highs, lower lows than most of us can imagine, including a stint in prison. But since then, has been incredibly successful. Best-selling author, the basis of an Oscar-nominated film, business advisor and investor. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thank you. Great to have you here. And alongside Jordan, we've got another super successful operator in business world who I'm lucky to call a friend as well as a colleague. Justin Kenner began his career in finance in Australia at companies the likes of Goldman Sachs, Deloitte. Ernst and Young, and then moved to the US to head up finance at Madison and Vine, a next-gen creative studio, was poached to be the CFO for the number one esports brand on the planet, that's FaZe Clan, and is now CEO of GameSquare Inc. Welcome to the show, Justin, or JK, as I will call it. Thanks, Patty. Great to have you both. Now, you guys are out there in California in a gorgeous studio for people who can't see it. Beautiful sunlit backdrop. <laughs> Great setup. I'm in a shitty uh, hotel set up in quarantine right now, so I'm going to live vicariously through you guys. One thing that's common in our setups here, though, is that your show, Jordan, has a wealth and a huge range of guests. We just had Shaquille O'Neal on the other day. We've had people from fighter pilots, NASCAR races, and now we've got financial gurus. And your show also has a broad range of guests. I'm curious. The show is called The Wolf's Den, right? Right, yeah. It's probably hard. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to. Who's your favorite guest that you've had? Like the most unusual, outstanding guest that you've had on the show? Well, he had he had me on there, so <laughs> <laughs> way to put him on the spot. <laughs> I, I'd say the same of all the people, probably me. No. <laughs> My solo podcast, no. Yeah. Um, I think, the, the, you know, listen, there's, some, there's a couple of podcasts that certainly stuck out for. They went viral. One of them was with the FBI agent that indicted me, became a very good friend of mine. And we speak all the time. So he was on my podcast, which was fabulous. And we went through all the stuff about what happened and his take on it. And then the, I guess the most famous podcast is one where I had this other allegedly top sales trainer on the podcast, Grant Cardone. He just made a, a total idiot of himself on my podcast. And was like, he just, he just completely thoroughly embarrassed himself, like knowing nothing about sales. He was supposedly teaching it to people. So that was one that people still to this day, like talk about this podcast all the time. It's really funny because yeah. he just obviously has no idea what he's talking about. So that was a good one. 
<laughs> awesome. I'm hoping that doesn't, that's not the way this one trends today, but I'm pretty no. sure. But I got great, I have great athletes. So I've like, you know, Blake Snell, uh, Juju Smith-Schuster. So I've had some really, you know, I got A-Rod coming on, Russell Wilson. So I have some, you know, you know really, I enjoy the sports people because they, uh, you know, exemplify, especially for this, in terms of this podcast, mm-hmm. tough mental toughness and fortitude. So it's always interesting. Yeah. It's amazing how much it crosses over, right? Top performers in any field, whether it is in finance, business, sport. We've had emergency room professionals, obviously Navy SEALs. People who are at the top of their game in whatever industry tend to have this different approach or a different view on life, which is, I can't wait to dive into it here. One of the things that we're going to go through is for each of you, some more challenging times along your journey to get to where you are right now. But as part of that, usually getting through those tough parts of your journey, it starts with a passion. We'll start with you, Jordan. When in your early days, do you think you realized that you'd like to have had a passion, maybe even loved, sales, business, and making money? Like, when does that become a thing for you? As far back as I can remember, like five or six, seven years old, I always wanted to have nice things. I'm not even sure why, but my parents, you know, tell a funny story that we were on a family vacation. I didn't grow up rich or anything like that. We grew up relatively poor and we were in some restaurant in Massachusetts, by the way, Cape Cod, and went to this restaurant. I ordered lobster on the menu. And I was like seven years old. So they're like, you can't have the lobster. I'm like, why not? You know? <laughs> but um, I think it, it really crystallized for me when I was 11 or 12 years old. And I started to realize that there were things that I wanted and couldn't have, like that my parents simply couldn't afford. And they were very honest with me. And I, I didn't understand that up until that point, like what was going on? Like what my parents are brilliant people, very, you know, educated, both CPAs, hardworking and yet had no money. And I was like, what is that? What's missing from the equation there with them at least? And, and why can't I have the things that I want? I aspired to the one that I saw on TV with things like dynasty and Dallas and shows like that of extreme wealth. And I, I always really wanted to go down that path and all the beautiful women that you always saw with that. Seriously, that's, you know, and, and I think that's what motivated me. Yeah. 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 I hope it's a similar detailed answer for you, JK. Like you studied finance back in Australia. Was it watching dynasty and Dallas and all the hot hot women on that show that led you to study that or was it something different? No, not quite. Mine's a little different, but um, no, I think for me, it's funny. I, I like, I've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, growing up in the country, I think it gives you like a level of humility. And I actually remember I went to Melbourne when I was 17 years old and I had a sort of, I would have been younger, I would have been 15 or 16 years old, I was still at high school and dad took me down. I did an interview at Ernst & Young to do this traineeship and on the, the invitation it said, come in, business attire or your school uniform. And so the, this whole room that I walk into, they're all in suits and they're in their, their jackets from their private school. And I was in my school uniform, but I went to school in the country. So I'm, I'm basically wearing some grey pants and a green jumper. And I walked into this room and I, I'd never felt more out of place. But I think from that day forward, for me, it was like I had this healthy chip on my shoulder, which was just I had this driver ambition to always prove that, you know, not only can I do what you can do, but I'm going to be better than than you are. And I think from that kind of country upbringing, it kind of gives you, I think, I steal this from the Richmond Football Club, Patty, but we use this now at Game Square and that's being humble and hungry. And I think that's what it is. So it's this, this hunger to actually want to achieve more and, and work hard and, and, you know, prove your worth. Love that. Love that. I've seen that summed up in a mathematical equation. 
you're always less than, but you always want more than. And it's a constant push and pull there. And it leads to my next question. This is a question I ask everyone on the show, and there's been some great, a broad range of answers, which is what's toughness mean to you in your experience? Is it that thing where it's a matter of like, there's a chip on someone's shoulder, there's competitiveness? We know from some of the research as they analyze kids who are about to get drafted, one of the best predictors of whether they're going to overachieve according to their draft slot, according to what everyone thinks they're going to get, is competitiveness above and beyond everything else. Is that a thing in the world of finance and business? Is that a big driver? Or is there something else that helps you deal with some of that shit you've got to go through? What toughness means to me is what do you do when things go wrong? I think there's a lot of people who talk about you know being tough and act tough, but really haven't seen the, the, the wrong side of you know whatever experience they're trying to achieve. Like, you know, I, I've seen the highest highs and I've been through the lowest lows. And it's very difficult to really know how someone's going to react and what they're going to do when they, oh, you know, the key is when you get knocked down, what you do, you get back. That's the old saying, right? Yeah. But it's easy to say, not so easy to do. And I think that it goes beyond that. Like, I think what ends up separating people who are tough is they understand why they need to be tough. I think you have to go deeper. So, you know, you could say, yeah, I'm, I'm tough. I want to be tough. And you can train toughness into someone. That's what the, I think the military does. And they, you know, they you know, train hard, fight easy, right? That's the adage of the Navy SEALs and so forth, mm-hmm. right? But I, I think that I see that people talk tough a lot and then you watch them wilt and they run. I see this all the time in business. They run at the first sign of trouble. And I think that part of it is, number one, you just have to go through some of this stuff yourself, but really got to know your why. You know, why do you want to succeed? And, you know, who's going to benefit if you do? Because typically it's the greatest motivators are not going to be yourself, your own fulfillment. So I always found myself going much further for people I loved and cared about, like my children. If it was about doing something to make sure my kids were okay or that my family was okay or a cause that I believed in was fulfilled, that I can get myself to do anything. It was just myself making money. Yeah, I can motivate myself, but it's much greater when it's for someone else I love. JK, you want to add anything on to that? Yeah, I mean, to add on to what Jordan was saying, I think for me, like mental toughness, is really conviction through adversity. And what I mean by that and sort of adding on to what Jordan was saying, it's not about when things are going great and, you know, for using sort of a public market company example where you have sort of a report card every three months, right, where you're giving your financial results. So it's not about when, you know, revenue's looking great and the share price is running and everybody's happy and you look like a rock star because, you know, the world just doesn't work like that every three months. I think it's about you know, having conviction in what you're building and in tough times and sticking to that. So it's understanding, you know, I think, you know, taking advice from shareholders and and people that have experience is really important. Taking everybody's advice and trying to make that work is not the right attitude either. It's about taking advice from people and, and, and using that to your conviction and what you think. And it's really sticking to your guns when things are going tough, right? And that's, I think that's true, obviously, not only business, but but in life. So for me, that's really what mental toughness is. It's it's sticking to your guns and sticking to your conviction, even through adversity. And that's, I think, how you come out the other side. A fantastic point. You also kind of, I don't want to leave this point aside, because this actually ties into your journey, JK, of sometimes doing tough things is about when things are going well, taking another step up. Like you've moved from Australia, you were in a great job, 
you were set. You didn't have to leave Australia, right? And yet here you are jumping across the Pacific, taking a chance on jobs here that who knows whether this beast is going to spit you up, uh, chew you up and spit you out or not. And yet that well, I assume that was a tough move, right? So how does, how does the sure. definition of like dealing with bad shit tie into that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's the old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I think that's the case if you want to learn. And, and what I was talking about before, it kind of alludes to this, right? It's like, it's about not thinking you're the smartest person in the room. It's about being a sponge and learning and, you know, being around people who've been through experiences, i.e., you know, Jordan through his experience in the capital markets, his knowledge there is incredible to be able to actually, you know, have the ear of somebody who has that experience is really important. So I think it's being a sponge, working through the knowledge part and then being able to fit that into your own story and your own journey and sticking to that. And you're right. I mean, it, it has its challenges. I think moving from a different country, you know, moving into new jobs, you know, leaving phase clan for me to, to come to game square was a really big decision. And, and one that a lot of people have probably been, you know, were confused by at the start, but this is my journey. And now I'm building something that I'm really proud of with the people that I want to build it with. So I think what doesn't kill you does make you stronger and, and, you learn from each experience and, and you do, you learn, you learn more from the failures, I think, than you do from the successes. And one of our other sort of catch cries is to fail quickly, right? If you're going to make a mistake and everybody does make those mistakes quickly, you don't sit around forever. You make your decisions and you move on and you move forward and you learn right. from the ones that don't work out. Jordan, I hear you chuckling and a knowing nod and smile in the background there. What's your best example of failing quickly along the journey? Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, I, when I teach people about entrepreneurship, I always divide it into two categories. I, I call it failing elegantly. Part of failing elegantly is failing quickly. It also means failing cheaply and also maximizing on the lessons learned through failure because it's through failure that we really learn a lot more. Ask any person that's really been there and done it in business or in life, and they'll tell you they've really got their greatest lessons when things weren't going well. So I think that's why I laughed when he said that failing quickly, it's that collapses into this idea of failing elegantly. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, in business, it means, you know, you know, using other people's money, seriously, <laughs> minimizing on financial loss for yourself and also minimizing on the time. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people in my own life who followed me in my journeys and they were always two steps behind me because they stayed too long at the last thing. They refused to throw in the towel. I'm talking my much younger years when I, you know, was at some business that I started even before I got into the brokerage business. And one of them was in the meat and seafood business. And it just, it was a terrible business. It was just a shitty idea. It was stupid. And it was like never going to be anything great. And I kind of realized that and moved on and went to Wall Street. And the other guy was like, no, 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 I'm in the meat business. I'm a, I'm a meat salesman. I got to make this work versus, you know, looking objectively, not getting emotional. I think people tend to get emotionally invested in things and they stop thinking about things in terms of just like, Hey, you know what, whether it succeeds or fails, you know, you know, it doesn't impact me in the sense that I'm not my failures. I learn and grow stronger from my failures and I use those to propel myself to success in the future. It's an integral part of succeeding at business because any business person has never failed before. It's just, it's just lying. Everyone fails, you know, at some right. point and makes mistakes. So that's a, a huge issue. I think another part also is, just getting back to toughness is I, I phrase it differently. I don't really use the word toughness, but I always say a part of just being an, a successful adult 
because I deal with a lot of people and the kids follow me, right? In their teens and in their twenties. It's like the ability to get yourself to do the shit you know you have to do, even when you don't feel like doing it. Mm-hmm. So like so many people, they'll work really, really hard and put a ton of effort into the stuff they enjoy because it feels good, but they can't get themselves to do the stuff that's not so enjoyable and they might hate. And I think a huge part of success is the ability to channel your effort, to be able to almost train yourself to do things that you don't like doing on day in and day out. You know, yeah, if you feel like doing them, great, that's easy. But what about when you don't feel like getting up every single day and showing up and doing the shit you know you got to do? That to me is such an integral part of succeeding. Whenever you see someone that's really failing and it's a mindset issue, so often it's about that. They just can't get them. They won't apply themselves. They once a week they'll show up, but not on a daily basis. That's a huge part of success. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show... I try to not overthink things too much. I have a vision for where I want to get to. But if I do everything really well in the short term, the medium term takes care of itself. So damn and do you feel like, like that's 100% spot on with what everyone has said who's come on this and also a lot of the research around trying to predict it. But do you think, here's, here's a curly one for you, do you think that is born or trained? Because here's the kicker, right? You've talked about emotional investment, which is like, I've got sunk costs in here. I bought a bunch of crypto and things went shit for a couple of months. And I I have these feelings that make me want to act a certain way, right? I want to get away from the bad feelings. I want to feel calmer. Likewise, when you're sitting in Australia and everything's set up, you've got these feelings. This is cool. I'm sitting on a beach. I got my friends. Why the fuck would I leave this, right? Mm. So you've got emotions on both ends that are are causing you to do actions that aren't probably good in the long term. Sure, sure. And so do you think it's a natural inbuilt thing like for yourself? Sure. Like I kind of have that or you learned it somewhere? Yeah. So I think I think like anything else, it's not black and white. It's probably I'm sure it's a combination of the two, but I think it's far more heavily weighted towards what you learn along the way. I think everyone's born with natural tendencies. Some people are born with natural tendencies to apply themselves and and be able to stick to tasks and and they don't get distracted as easily. And I'm sure there's a genetic component to this, but I think a far greater portion of this is learned behavior based on root experiences. In other words, I think what happens with a lot of people is they have these root experiences early in life that form beliefs. And from those beliefs, they start taking actions based on those beliefs and acting in accordance with the system of beliefs they have. And those beliefs and the systems of those which can empower you or disempower you. So for example, often I'll hear people say, oh, I have a terrible fear of public speaking. I hate speaking. I just, to even think about it, it's going to make me nauseous and vomit. And invariably, if you go back, well, why is that? Were you born with that? No, they weren't born with it. It will go back to like the third grade or something where they had to stand up in front of class and give a speech and they weren't really well prepared. They didn't have a natural ability to do it. So because of the latch of natural ability, no one gave them strategy to do it and coached them through it. Their first experience was terrible and they felt bad about it. And that formed this belief of I'm not a good public speaker. Once you have that belief, that belief will search 
the horizon, the everything to reinforce itself. And you'll start acting in accordance. So the next time you go up to speak, you'll feel nervous. You won't prepare. I don't like this. And you do even worse. And their belief starts to reinforce itself until it almost becomes a conviction. Right? I hate public speaking. Right. Mm-hmm. Versus someone like myself, where the first time I will you know, got to speak, the words just flowed out effortlessly. And I, you know, I love what I was talking about. And I was like, well, and it, and it felt great. And I started to say, wow, now, this- now you can't get the microphone off it. Like- now, <laughs> yeah, but, no, you're right. That's it. You get it. So it gets to the point where after, over time, you're still, it's who you are. So that I think is so much of it. I'm going to point out that the, the number one fear of human beings on this planet is public speaking above yeah, the human Bleeding, right. all that sort of shit. Um, yeah. uh, lucky you, 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 you didn't have any of it. I have a fear of not public speaking. <laughs> I have a fear of not public speaking. <laughs> not not speak. speaking enough. Exactly. Is, is I love to talk publicly. I'm my most comfortable when I'm talking publicly, and the bigger the crowd, the better. But that was something that, I lo- that was natural in the beginning, but learned along the way because it felt good. And I think that more people, if they were not throwing, like it, it, so much of this is like a kid goes out there to play soccer. And he has not, not great, nat- and this is a natural ability, definitely plays a role in that here, but they're not coached correctly. They have a bad experience. They feel bad about it. They will laugh that. And so the next time they do it, they don't want to do it. It feels bad. Mm-hmm. And that's like this, this reinforcing cycle of beliefs is so important. It's not to say that, that natural abilities matter. They both matter, but it's a yeah. huge issue. Yeah, I agree. That. I mean, what I was going to say before is that I think it's a bit of both, right? Like people, I think certain people have there's something in them where they naturally have more drive and they want more and they have more ambition. But I think to the second part of it, Patty, you were saying before, do you think you can be trained? I mean, of course you can, but that comes down to a mentality and and a willingness and a want to learn rather than quick fixes. Cause a lot of this stuff isn't a quick fix, right? If you want to be able to, to get up and be a leader and speak on a certain subject, you need to do the work and you need to understand, you know, your work and what, what is behind that before you can actually, you know, really deliver a message. And I think that's kind of a piece that, you know, might be missing a little bit these days with this sort of social media culture and everybody wanting sort of instant gratification. I think there is a lot there that is around that willingness to want to learn because as I was talking to before, I look at, you know, business leaders that I've had, and I've been very lucky to work with some really impressive leaders, the amount that I've been able to learn from them. And I think it really is about being a sponge, learning as much as you can and continuing to learn and develop those leadership traits. I don't think any of these things are easy, even to people that may have that innate ability internally. Your point there, particularly about the social media thing, is that it's rife these days. I don't, I'm sure both of you get hit probably more than I do on LinkedIn or Insta or whatever, and people are like, oh, I want to get to where you go. Tell me how to do it, right? And my quick response is, look, my path is weird and whining and you don't want, like, it's, you probably wouldn't be able to repeat it. But more importantly, I don't think you understand all the shit that happened for, yeah, I'm working with the 76ers and, yeah, I'm working with the Red Sox, but you don't understand the eight years of shit that I had to swim oh, through. So you you, you didn't just walk into the Boston Red Sox and, you know, then give you a cap and a, and a clipboard and say, go for it. Come on. It doesn't in, work yeah. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you both touched a little bit there on the, the knowledge of like, well, particularly Jordan, you mentioned having bad experiences early that can kind of shape people. We had Denise Shell on, who's the, the basis of the character in Billions, the, the performance coach on that show. And she talks about this thing called anticipatory affect, which is effect, you know, it's a fancy word for saying, I'm imagining what that's going to feel like and I'm making my decisions based on what it's going to feel like mm. rather than being yeah. objective, right? 
how much is your job as an advisor? So let's switch lanes here from theory and psychology to actually like your practical business work. Jordan, as an advisor or an investor in a company like GameSquare, how much of your role is to say, look, here's some cash, go like kill it and pay me back? Or how much, you know, if you're going to divide up the pie, how much of it is to get with someone like Justin and say, look, here's something, you know, it's rough, but hold on. Or you got to get out of that early. Like how much is tactical versus... So, capital? yeah, I mean, I don't think GameSquare is probably the best example because with GameSquare, my brand is really the big, the trash because it's such a message to market match for you. My core fan base is 16 to 30 years old, males, skewing male, about 70, 30. So I think that, you know, what I bring to GameSquare is probably a lot... I'm happy to give Justin advice and stuff, but I think Justin's got his head on pretty straight with business at this point. Most of my clients, though, when, when I am coaching them on business stuff, a lot of it, you know, there's always two sides to success. You know, it's a, there's a, we live in a world of duality. There's a yin and a yang, right? There's up, there's going to be down. There's yes, there's no. There's always two sides to every coin. So in business, you have, you know, the inner game of success, and then you have the outer game. The outer game is all your actual strategies. And, you know, that could be sales strategies, marketing, just entrepreneurial strategies. And then there's the inner game, which is mindset of success, right? And they, they both matter. I mean, you, can, you know, everything starts up in your mind, obviously. And that's from, you know, where you develop an intention and you want to go out and take action to make that intention become a reality. And I think what happens with a lot of people is they, they sometimes get sabotaged up in their own mind. There's, there's things that they have that, that are literally holding them back from success, whether it's limiting beliefs, the inability to manage their state, low standards, a lack of a clear vision for their own future. So when I'm working with someone, I try to define, like I try to get these core elements lined up for them. Like, you know, make sure they're clear on their vision. They don't have any limiting beliefs about themselves or business in general that would hamper them. Because what happens is the, the beliefs of these like sort of silent kills of success. I have certain clients, they just make perpetually bad decisions. They make really bad decisions. Like I have one client in particular and he's constantly like just really doing things where I'm like, I cannot believe like, why would someone do this to themselves? They're literally forcing themselves to take, you know, three steps backwards for every two forward. And they're successful because they're in a successful industry. Right. And it's very difficult to like, you cannot be lying of a saying you can wave a magic wand on, on these people and just make them change overnight. It's not, an overnight thing as much as we'd like to think it is, but it's about constantly intervening on someone and then pointing it out and trying to give them evidence, like real world, like here's what you did. Here's what tough love constantly. Right. And then eventually you see, they start making better decisions. I mean, that's the only way, but so much of it happens up here in, in their mind. Yeah. JK flipping to you on that point, how much of your approach to like, when I first heard about some of your moves, you, I think you mentioned it earlier, like your move from, Face Clan to GameSquare a little bit, but even from the normal finance and advertising into Face Clan, like they're a little bit left turns and unexpected, right? And particularly even the business direction of Face Clan and the emphasis on that brand side that Jordan mentioned. Yeah. It's a little bit of a different approach, right? How do you get to the point where that seems to where you decide I'm going to swim against the grain versus we're going to do what everyone else is doing? Like that seems to be a bit of a trend of yours. Is that fair? Yeah, a little bit. I, th I mean, I think that for me, it's an interesting one, right? Like everybody always talks about five-year goals and 10-year goals and where you're going to be and, and all these types of things. My whole thing has always been 
do the work, get myself in a position that I can achieve. And I have this, and I call it ruthless pursuit of short-term goals. And that's what I'm about is a ruthless pursuit of short-term goals opens up doors to bigger and better opportunities in the future. That's not to say that, you know, for example, I'll, I'll talk about Game Square. I have a vision for where Game Square is going to be in five years' time. Now, are we going to be there? Maybe, maybe not. Will we achieve the things I want to achieve? I'd like to think so, but is it going to look exactly like what I think it's going to look like? It's not going to, right? There's variables and you need to, even what Jordan was talking to before, as strong as you are in your convictions, you need to have the ability to pivot. And my whole thing has really been about backing myself in and having ruthless pursuit of short-term goals. So I try to not overthink things too much. I have a, a vision for where I want to get to, but if I do everything really well, in the short term, the medium term takes care of itself. And that's kind of my attitude. And so, you know, from Phase Clan and even moving from Phase Clan into Game Square, I did that. And I gave, you know, Phase Clan three years of ruthless pursuit of short-term goals that I think has been, you know, I'm very proud of and, and has been a contributor to the success and growth of Phase Clan and where they sit today. And, you know, for me personally, I had an opportunity to come over and, you know, at 36 years of age, be the CEO of a publicly listed company. And, you know, for me, that was, that was exactly that. I'm not, I'm not in this to you know, be at a basketball game with a celebrity or in this to, you know, walk around and talk about how amazing FaZe Clan is. I'm in this to, to actually grow a business and build value for those who believe in me. And I had the opportunity to do that and come over to Game Square. And to be frank, it's been an incredible experience thus far. And we've got a lot of growth ahead of us. Love that ruthless pursuit of short-term goals. If you haven't trademarked it already, I'm about to as soon as this finishes. I want to grab that and talk about this. One of the aims that started this podcast was I was on, I am still part of the advisory board for human performance at the Army. And I had some guest speakers and they were like, could you curate something that might help us talk about, number one, trying to get our operators and our personnel engaged with people who will help them with their inner game and number two, actively give some tips on that. And the number one really was the key. And so I want to switch back to you, Jordan, and you're, you know, the most, one of the most famous lines of, you know, sell me this pen, but I want to flip it a little bit. And you kind of do this when you talk about your coaching anyway, but I'm curious to say, can what would you do to sell to someone the idea that you actually, why they should have an advisor or a performance coach or a therapist for their inner game? Like, how would you sell that to someone to say, look, if you want to be as good as I have been in business, you want to be as successful as Justin is in business, you need someone to help you with your inner game. How would you sell that? Well, first I start asking them questions and stuff. I want to find out, you know, what they're doing, you know, what, how they perceive their, their level of success right now, what they think their strongest aspects are naturally, what their weakest points are. I try to find out what's bothering them, you know, what their main pain points are. I want to find out the, the biggest thing is going to be is trying to find out what is really keeping them up at night in terms of success you know, and then trying to basically get them to just really one of the biggest mistakes people make with this is they try to sell things to people without really understanding what the prospect even needs. And they use their own map of the world to just assume what they think someone needs. And very often you're wrong because people are really all very different and they have very different, you know, belief systems about things and what makes one person 
thrill will make another person miserable. So I'm very much into like this intelligence gathering and trying to identify at the highest level what someone's primary and secondary pain points are. What's really keeping them up at night in terms of their own level of success. And this is what I led to the inner game in terms of the inner game of success. And once I have that identified and I feel like I've asked enough questions to really ferret that out. And as I'm doing that, it's really important. I don't just do that and listen. Like I don't ask a question like, and just sit there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm very active. Like when I listen to people, I'm like, yep, mm-hmm, got, yep. Mm-hmm. I very, is a, a big part of communication is how you listen to people and not just your grunts and groans, but your body language. It's a, it's a cohesive package of, it's called active listening. And the idea is that when you ask someone questions and they answer you, you listen in a way that builds massive rapport with them. So you can either be the grand inquisitor asking questions and they hate you. Like, what, what the hell are you asking me questions for? Like, none of your business or like the trusted advisor. That's one that really cares about them and you really want to know. So if I say to you, so what's your biggest pain point right now? You say, screw you. you know, or I can say to you, so what's your biggest pain? What's really keeping you up at night right now? And so like, and if you, so there's, there's nuances here in communication. So if you do this the right way, you ask the questions in the right order with the right tonality attached and you listen actively by the time that you're done asking the questions and you know what you need to know. And you say, listen, well, you know, based on what you said, the program I offer is literally a perfect fit for you. Let me tell you why. And now I'm going to tailor my presentation to directly match onto their pain points and what they do. And then I'll end that by asking them, and here's how you get started. Let's get started right now. And I make it very easy to get started. And there you go, you know? And that yeah. approach actually also helps you learn more about the person as well, right? The active yeah. listening and engaging. And rather than somebody, especially in those situations, I feel like people give you this story about themselves you know, and, and you hear what they want you to hear rather than, as you said, once you start to, to poke and exactly. prod and, and you're, Austra- you're Australian, right? Yes, I am. He is. He, he's lost a bit of his accent. I, so I'll, tell you, so I'll, I'll tell you a great story about <laughs> from Australia. So I was paid a lot of money back in like 2010 to by some psychologists in Australia. And they want to uh, d- dissect the straight line system, what I teach, why it works so well. They wanted to make it into a behavioral model and so forth. And, and they sat me in a room for like three or four days and gave me all these different tests and drills and critical incident scenarios, which is a fancy way of saying role-playing for psychologists. Right. (laughs) And, you know, I did everything from Rorschach inkblot tests to like literally role-playing. And one of the role plays was a, a, a CEO of a Australian based dairy company. He was an actor, the guy, but he played this guy. He was really good, by the way. And, and he must have, he really knew it was shit. And they handed me a dossier. And they said, okay, here's this Australian milk company in the middle of uh, the Gold Coast somewhere. And they've been in business for 50 years, family-owned company. They want to go now and expand into China and blah, blah. There's a whole story. And he said, you got 15 minutes to go through this and convince him now. I was supposed to be an investment bank and convince him to, rate, to switch to use my bank, Okay as one of their investment banks to raise money and, you know, advise them. Right. And they say, you got 15 minutes to analyze this dossier and then close this guy, the CEO. So they gave me the dossier, whatever. Long story short is that because a lot happened, but like they gave me 15 minutes, I ended up taking an hour and a half because I prepare for what I don't believe in just going off of the cuff. Right. 
But they call the CEO and they have all the cameras and lights on, the psychologists in every corner with their pads looking. And this guy comes in and I start going through, giving him a straight line presentation. And after 25 minutes, after the fourth time I asked him for the order, he said, no, the first three times. He's like, he's like, fine, I'll do it. And he starts laughing hysterically. I'm like, and he's, and I closed the guy. He says, he's laughing. And the psychologists are roaring in laughter. I'm like, what are you guys laughing about? They're like, we paid him to say no. He was told that under no circumstances can he say yes. He has to say no. And you still close. He's the not guy. getting paid now. He's not getting paid. But he said yes. I want to throw to you now, JK, because one of the other things that is common on this show, I've mentioned some of the guests. We've got, you know, NBA, NFL, MLB, actors, comedians, fighter pilots, Navy SEALs, people who like, if you screw up in the next five minutes, you're toast. Someone might die in some cases. Or you're going to lose a $10 million contract or you lose a Super Bowl, like all sorts of massive things are on the line. I'm going to suggest that when you're pitching to an investor that could influence your bottom line, firstly with just a capital injection or someone of Jordan standing in terms of brand reach, et cetera, there's some shit going on inside you as the presenter, right? Or, you know, in a meeting where you're making a big decision, yeah. Jordan, to actually invest. What, what's that like for you? Did that get better for you? Like tell us, tell us about some of those edge of your seat moments that, you come across as the CEO or as a CFO? I think the first point is to remember that that no one is dying in the process, right? So you're not a surgeon and and at the end of the day, you know, obviously you want to make people money who, who are investing in you and believe in you. But you know, we're we're running a gaming company and that should be fun. So we work very hard, but but trying to actually, you know, make it fun. But I think what Jordan said in the previous question was was spot on and that's being an expert in your field and and having people feel comfortable in that. So I always revert back to, it was about three and a half years ago and we were going to raise money for Phase Plan at that time. The gaming industry, gaming and esports industry was not what it is now. And actually, you know, there, there wasn't a huge amount of money being invested in the space. And we had this, I'd call it a business loosely. At the time it was, wasn't much of a business. It was a, a brand with a big social media following, but a lot of question marks on how you actually monetize that. And uh, Greg Selko and I actually went and we we did a roadshow on the East Coast, and you know we pitched on Wall Street to you know a bunch of suits. And to be quite frank, we walked in there and told the story. And, and that experience, now looking back on that, really shaped my kind of experience around being an expert and needing to know absolutely everything about your business. And I think there's no better way of knowing every single thing about your business. There's no better way than pitching your business to very intelligent people who are giving you their money, right? Because mm. they're going to ask you so many different questions. And I think from there to now, you know, I raised roughly 60 million in debt and equity at Phase Clan. We've you know, raised, I think, 11 million so far at Game Square. It definitely gets easier you you feel more comfortable after doing it for sure but i think it, it also just comes down to knowing literally everything about your business and you know when i went in to pitch phase kind of that point i believed in our story but there are a lot of things we still need to work out as a business there are a lot of question marks and i think it's also down to winning the crowd and the credibility but also not trying to 
answer every question perfectly if, if you don't have every single answer, being honest about it and coming back to it. But I think, you know, to answer that question, Patty, I think it gets a lot easier the more you do it. You feel more comfortable. I think the key to it is is understanding your business and understanding, you know, your content to be able to actually instill trust and faith in others for, for them to give you their money to believe in you and the growth of your business. Yeah, I love it. I mean, knowing you said again, we're going back to over the same ground there, but knowing your shit first and foremost, being credible. Sure. And then getting the reps, which allows you to continually know your shit better and better because people will ask you questions that you may not have been ready for if you're honest. You go and find totally. the answer. You don't, you don't try and make it up. Totally. And being thrown in the deep end, I think, for me was probably the best thing, right? Like you can prepare and, and I'm you know similar to Jordan. I prepare for meetings and for big pitches and presentations like no other, I'm not going to be outworked. But if I look back now on that pitch, I didn't know what to expect, right? Walking into a sea of vultures in suits that, you know, want to know everything about the industry and how you monetize every little morsel of it. And at that point in time, we hadn't figured it all out. So being thrown in the deep end was a really good learning curve. And then from there, you know, really, as you said, honing, honing your own skills and continually getting those reps in. Like there's certain, I think what people often do is they forget the certain steps. There's like these foundational steps. Like, okay, how it was like, wow, look, we came back with failure. Leonardo DiCaprio played him in a movie and, and Marty Scorsese directed it. And now it's like, it's a global brand. Well, guess what? When I first tried to write the book, The Wolf of Wall Street, it sucked. The first <laughs> few drafts were like, you, it was like, I wrote three pages and like, you know, I was in jail at the time. And my bunkmate was Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. And he was like, oh, yeah, this really sucks. I'm like, oh, thanks, Tommy. Tell me what you really think, right? <laughs> and and it, what it was, I stumbled upon a book called Bonfire of the Vanities. And I used it like a textbook and I taught myself to write. But I spent more than 10,000 hours teaching myself the foundational skill that was required to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And I think what people often forget is that typically in most businesses or endeavors in life, there's going to be something that you got to really learn is this actual skill. And in the absence of that skill, all the desire in the world is not going to matter. So it's like the intersection of desire, hard work and skill. So unless you're willing to take the time to learn a skill set, then you're screwed, right? So I think this, you have to get honest with yourself, like what the first step in achieving any goals, like, well, we don't set the goal, obviously, right? But also, what do I need to learn? Are there any specialized skills or info I have to learn here to succeed and get what I want? If you don't do that, you're going to be working 10 times as hard and probably not going to achieve what you want in life. Yeah. And a lot of people set goals with, here's my outcome, here's what, here's what I want at the end of it. They don't think much about the input, right? What you got to put in, what you actually got to learn and build in yourself. Switching modes here because you, you talked a little bit. So we've talked about preparation there, right? But that came off the back of talking about being thrown in the deep end. And Jordan, I mentioned in the intro, you were thrown in the deep end into a situation most of the, our listeners, I'm sure there'll be some exceptions, but most of our listeners haven't been to jail, haven't served time. And so you went in there and served, uh, it was more than a year, right? Almost two years? Two, two, almost two years, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so tell us about that experience, if you're okay talking about it. Like, that, sure, that's, yeah. a, that's a tough experience, right? What was the hardest thing for you going in there that it's pretty hard to prepare for some of that stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I wasn't in a penitentiary. So, like, I, was in, I wasn't terrible. I wasn't worried about dropping a bar of soap in the shower. So it wasn't like that bad, okay? But jail's jail, and it still sucks, right? And it was awful because, you know, I was separated from my children, 
And it's just like, you know, when you're in jail, you're like the ultimate loser. You are. You're a loser because you've lost in the game of life. You've lost. You did whatever it is you lost. You've temporarily lost. And now you're locked up with no civil rights. It's terror. It's like you can't imagine what it does to someone's psychology because it's like there's just no way around. You can't rationalize your way out of it. You are a loser. And the world goes on without you. And I think what happens to a lot of people is they go into jail and they allow that to become who they are. They allow the experience to define them versus for me, what I did is I used it to propel me to greatness. Like, a, And it might sound odd, and but you take the hand that you're dealt or you dealt yourself and you move forward. So, you know, for me, I remember there was this moment in jail when, you know, Tommy Chong, who was my bunkmate, and he said to me, you have to write a book because I was telling him stories at night. And he was rolling on the floor. He goes, I thought they were bullshit. <laughs> and my wife Googled you and it's all true. I can't believe you lived this life. And, I, and I, ironically, I didn't think my life was that crazy because it was my life. I'm like, really? You think my life is it's like, I'm Tommy Chong and I think your life is crazy, right? <laughs> and, the, and in that moment, I made a decision to start. I said, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. And then it was just a terrible struggle. I was a terrible writer. I couldn't write anything well. It was really boring to read my writing. And then I had this, Second incident where I stumbled upon this book. Oh my God, this is how I want to write. And I literally taught myself to write, like word by word, taught myself to become a, uh, what I think most people say is a very, very good writer now. Okay. In terms of like, you know, I can write as good as pretty much most great authors, right? Not like the best of the best, but I'm up there. Okay. I really, and I believe that in my heart. I was walking around the prison for about a year and a half with my books and writing under my arm. And I kept saying to myself, everyone else here is wasting their time. I'm not. I'm going to come out. I want to show everybody here. And I, it was a strategy I was doing on purpose. I was doing it to myself, knowing I'm kidding myself. I'm saying, I'm going to write a bestseller. I'm going to take this whole thing. They don't know. They're wasting their time. They do nothing. I'm doing something. I'm improving myself. So I used that time away to improve myself. To give myself, I exited prison with a skill set that few people have. I don't have ghostwriters when I write my books. I write my books myself. So that skill I developed, I exited a much more powerful person in terms of the ability to communicate. I always had the natural born ability to speak, but not write. That skill allowed me to achieve everything else going forward. Now, what have I been successful in? Yeah, I would have been successful anyway. It was in my nature. But that skill, it was that moment in jail, not allowing to say, I am the mistake of my past. That's the, the big one. I'm not the mistake or the mistakes of my past. I'm the resources and capabilities that I gleaned from my past mistakes. So every mistake you make, if you can look at it that way, you grow stronger, you learn from it, you develop muscle. So I exited jail now with the ability to write really well. Ethics now really back in line, knowing I'll never do something wrong again like that. I learned my lessons on that, that regard. And I set myself up for massive success. And then I came out and wrote the book the first year, working 18 hours a day, hiding away in a small little apartment, and the rest is history. So like you said, people say, oh, you work for this team and that team, and they don't know what the blood, sweat, and tears. Well, the blood, sweat, and tears that went into my thing was literally countless hours of teaching myself to write and then writing that book and going to jail. 
You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... I really believe that if I do the hard work, I'm going to succeed. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I believe it. And when you believe that, your brain will say, all right, well, I might as well do the hard work because I'm going to get the payoff. So damn that's an amazing turning shit to gold kind of story, right? It's a, the alchemy of, of life, being able to take some shit stuff and make good stuff out of it. Um, the important is it was on purpose, though. It was on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Yeah, so I'm curious about that because one of the, I know we're starting to get up against time, but one of the things that we talk about here, as well as being able to find an advisor, like formally potentially for your inner game, sometimes it comes through heroes that we have. Either people that we see, we read their shit, like you found this book that kind of shaped how you wanted to talk in writing, or we have actual advisors in business or a coach or a parent or something like that, right? Was it your deliberate intent in jail to flip the shit and turn it into gold? Obviously, people want to do that, right? But you were deliberate and specific and crafted about it. Like, Did you have someone who pointed you in the direction besides Mr. Chong? Well, well, I'll say this, that Tommy Chong probably told every single, Tommy's a really nice guy. He was not one to keep to himself. He gave advice to a lot of people. He probably told 30 people that to go write books. I'm the only one that actually taught themselves to write and wrote a book. I always say that so much of it is about like this ability to get yourself to do the shit you don't like doing. And a lot of people, they just cannot get themselves. They don't have that. It's discipline to do all the stuff that happens before the glory. Do you have a trick for that? How do you make yourself do that? It's a set of values and beliefs I have about success. I fully believe that's an integral part of success. Like in my mind, I don't see any other way. So like if I want to achieve success, I have a firm belief that success requires preparation, hard work. The easiest money you'll ever make is when you're working the least hard. You make most of your money when you're hardly even working. All of the hard work goes into before you become successful. And this is what people don't get. Like they feel like, oh, is it overnight success? Yeah, after six years of hard work. So it's like once you're succeeding, making money is, I made the most money hardly working. You know, oh, five, 20 million there, five, and it happens now. It's like unbelievable. I can print money now after years and years and years of blood, sweat, and tears, right? Mm-hmm. But I enjoy that. Like in my mind, I've linked up. Like to me, I believe that part of the journey is the hard work and like the not succeeding. So like when I'm not getting what I want, I'm not getting, I'm not negative about it. I'm like, it's, I'm, I'm one step closer. It's like, it's like, it's not, a, it's not a game. It's like, it's a belief I have, a tacit belief that this is how you succeed in life. You do these things and you will succeed. And then what I don't do, and this is a big problem for many people, many of your listeners, I bet, is that many people don't truly believe they have what it takes to succeed. It's not fear of failure that stops them. It's that when they play the movie out, they're like, I don't know if I really are going to succeed. So why should I do all the hard work? Like, I really believe that if I do the hard work, I'm going to succeed. doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I believe it. And when you believe that, your brain will say, all right, well, I might as well do the hard work because I'm going to get the payoff. And it goes mm-hmm. back, Patty, to your point before that a lot of people worried about the output rather than the input. It's the input that the output will take care of itself. Like what you're saying, Jordan, in terms of, you do that hard work, you know, a lot of these people are making money when they're successful, but it's the work and it's the input that actually gets you there. So similar to my ruthless pursuit of short-term goals, 
don't worry about the output so much. Actually put in the work then, you know, it'll take care of itself. Yeah. And, and, and is that either the ruthless pursuit of short-term goals or that I know that there's a, that's a paraphrase almost, might be accidental, of a 49ers coach who used to say, uh, I think it was Walsh, Bill Walsh used to say the scoreboard will take care of itself. Like everything yeah. around the, the West Coast offense was let's get four yards at a time because if we do that 100 times in a row, we score every time. You get a first down every time, you score, the scoreboard takes care of itself. Just get four yards. Are they getting back to your ruthless pursuit of short-term goals and any other parts of your philosophy in terms of how you've approached this fantastic career to date, heroes are the people you borrow from. Like, was there someone along the way that helped guide you? Or is this just you, you've taken bits and pieces of some of the people you've been underneath or alongside? Yeah, for sure. I've had a, a number of different mentors along the way and I've been very lucky to do so. In Australia, working within Big Four in investment banking and then I was running a strategy group at one of the Big Four banks and the CMO at the time, she was one of the best leaders of, that I've ever had but also encouraged me to look at opportunities overseas and was one of the reasons that I took the leap and came to LA in the first place which was a big leap at the time. You know, I was very young to be running a strategy group at a big four bank in Australia. I was living in Bondi with a great group of friends and, and enjoying life. But, you know, I took a pay cut and came over to the US and, you know, at that point in time really didn't have much here at all. And it was sort of her advice that helped me. And, and while that can be perceived as a risk, it's a pretty educated one, right? Like, I'm taking a risk, but if it doesn't work out, I can go back to Australia and I'll have a good job and I'll have my mates there and life goes on. But the upside of that is learning to work in a new market, which has so many greater opportunities. And so, yeah, I think for me, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've been around a lot of really impressive leaders within business, but also I guess I've had the ability to be a bit of a sponge as well. And I think that's important. You can be lucky enough to be in, in the room with people who have that experience, but you have to be willing to stop and listen and try to extract as much of that as you can. And I've uh, been lucky enough to do so. That's definitely really helped me. Yeah, and that's and that's that humble and hungry at the same time, right? You've got to be you've got to be in the room, but you've got to be willing to be doing the work, pick up on what they put out there and run with it. As I said, we're getting close to the end of the show, so I, I want to finish with usually the last way we tie things up is – where to from here? So we'll start with you, JK. It's a great journey so far, but compared to the two older blokes on the show, you're still spring chicken in terms of your, your business career, right? Young I don't CEO. feel it. <laughs> young, that's probably because of your days back in Bondi. Young CEO. <laughs> young CEO, still a long way to go. Obviously very invested in, in your current role and it's a great spot to be in. What do you hope for the future? As you obviously expand and, and esports is taking off, what do you hope for your future, both yourself, for the industry, and for people who might be listening to this show? For sure. So I think for me, you know, leaving FaZe Clan I wasn't an easy decision, but it was the right decision and definitely not something I did lightly, but I now look at it and my goal is the same and that's to build the biggest gaming and esports company in the world. You know, I took over earlier this year. We've had pretty exponential growth and I think we have some real growth in front of us you know again what that looks like in five years can take a number of different forms but you know with the people that we have you know around us that in building this company we have a we have a no dickhead policy and we've been sticking to that pretty well I think we're building you know a really incredible company but 
I stick fat to that. I'm very confident that we can build the biggest gaming and esports company in the world. And with that, you know, for me personally, I want to be able to set up a life for my family that I can, you know, support them. And that's also my extended family and, and family and friends back home. I want to be in a position to be able to do that. So that definitely motivates me. And, you know, as you kind of go along this journey and you have people that believe in you and, you know, whether it's, advisors or investors or people that are, you know, giving up their hard-earned money because they believe in you. I take that very seriously and I want to make sure that every single person that's put one cent into this company, you know, gets a lot back. So I think that we're really well positioned, not trying to look too far ahead, but, you know, continuing to do the right things and build this company the right way. And I'm really confident that we'll get there. Love it, love it. Touching on what Jordan mentioned before about really knowing your why, it helps you push through some of the long, hard nights and early starts, 5 a.m. in the sauna, as you mentioned before we started recording. <laughs> Jordan, over to you. What about, like, your your story has evolved, obviously an incredible journey that most people are more familiar with than mine and Justin's. At a point now where you're doing a lot of coaching, a lot of advising and investing, what do you hope to come from that as opposed to when you were just trying to make a bunch of money and build an awesome company? What is it now that drives you and what are you hoping for the future? So I guess, you know, at this point, it's, you know, my brand is really well established and uh, I'm doing a lot of licensing deals and I'm very interested in finding good companies to work with and advising young CEOs and trying to help them, you know, grow their businesses and get super rich. They all want to be super rich. Right. And again, for me, the money is a scorecard, right? Obviously I want to get equity in these deals as well, but you know, for me, it's like, you know, I mean, it's very strange to walk around and like wherever I go, people, have, you know, they've seen the movie, they watch my stuff online. And the one overriding thing they always say is, oh my God, you changed my life. Like you saw this and it just had such an impact on me. So it's really just about like, for me, it's like, it's just expanding on that message. Honestly, it's like, I don't look at it just in consulting with CEOs. There's all these young, there's so many young kids out there. When I say kids, it's like anyone under 30, right? <laughs> and like, they look at, at my life and everything I've accomplished, what I've lost, what I've been able to make back. And, you know, for them, it represents like this unbelievable, like just sort of drive to succeed. And I feel like a responsibility from that. Like I have, a, I have a, an awesome responsibility to make sure that they understand what the good things were, what the bad things were. And also how do you, I believe everyone has a right and the ability to get rich. I really believe that. And I, I think that, you know, the old model of going to college and, you know, working for a corporation, I, I really don't believe in that anymore. I think if you listen to certain things, that if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or some sort of degree that is required for a license, that's one thing, engineer. But for the most part, if you, know, you want to be an entrepreneur, you just don't need to go to college. And I think that so many people are getting caught up in, in getting really rotten educations that are more about political correctness and insanity than in actual practical business skills to prepare them to succeed in life. So that's my goal is just to continue to you know, go out there, educate more people and inspire more people around the world. That's awesome. You do educate, you do inspire, and you are a great paragon I, I would use that fancy word of of resilience both in your story and and ongoing i want to wrap it up there and say thank you to you both you've both shed a lot of light on some areas that some of our listeners may not be that familiar with at the, at the top end of business so great level of education both of your stories are inspiring in different ways and you're both paragons 
of resilience and really looking forward to watching the industry and yourselves individually take off from here. So appreciate you sharing your stories, Thanks. your wisdom with the crowd and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Thanks, buddy. So what is it got to be so Shades on and let me show you